the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Okay, we ready? Let's do this. It's a minute before 3 o'clock. Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine. Nice to have you here. Thank you for uh, for spending part of your day with us here on uh, Southern California Live. Most of us, I, I imagine you're you're like this. We don't have to think very hard. Don't have to look very far to to pull up the name of somebody we know who, when they were in high school, they were in youth group, they were. They expressed passion about their faith in Christ. They went on the mission trips with the youth group. They they were the kids you looked at and said these these are the kids that the, the, the if if our future is in their hands we feel good about this. And then sometime during college after college, we start hearing stories that yeah they're they're not going to church or. They're they're not sure. They're questioning elements of their faith. They're they're doubting, and maybe it's not long after that you start to hear that yeah they they have kind of been transparent about the fact that they don't believe that anymore. Uh, the, the term that's getting kicked around these days, the term deconstruction, you've probably heard that term for people who uh, are taking their faith apart and seeing if they can put it back together. And and there are high profile high, high profile people who fit this. Um one trajectory is not is not to completely abandon the faith, but it's to trade in the evangelicalism you grew up with for a more progressive, a more modern, a more um well, just a more uh, culturally friendly version of Christianity. And the question is, what's behind all of this? And how should we think about it? And how do we understand it? And how do we engage with people who, you know, the, the hymn we sing says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. There are a lot of people singing, I once was found, but now I'm not sure. And and to help us think through this and talk about it is somebody who's been on this journey herself. Um, Alyssa Childers is joining us on Southern California Live this afternoon. She's an author, a speaker, a musician, and a, if I've got this right, a California girl. Is that right? Alyssa, welcome to Southern California Live. You fit this. You're a California girl, right? I am. Bob, great to be with you. Yeah, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and Northridge and Chatsworth and haven't been there since about 1999. I mean, I haven't lived there at least since then. But, yeah, that's where I was born and raised. And and grew up going to church in a Christian home. In fact, some of us are old enough to know who your dad is. 
because he had a little high profile <laughs> even before you were in the music business. He was in the music business. Tell everybody who your dad is. Yeah, well, my dad is Chuck Gerard, and he, along with some of his hippie friends back in the late 60s and 70s, formed a band called Love Song, and they all committed their lives to Jesus and started writing Jesus songs, and those Jesus songs really became the seedbed of what became eventually the contemporary Christian music industry. We've talked about it often. In fact, John Fisher was just on with us this week and was talking about the fact that when he was up in Northern California, they brought in this band from the South that came. It was it was your dad, and it was Love Song, and they did a concert up at uh, up at the church there. So we we often get nostalgic because I am of that that age. I you know I have to kind of admit that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you, you your journey then spiritually. Is, is kind of like what I described here. You grew up going to church and and fired up for Jesus and got involved in Christian music when you were in high school and college. When was that that you were a part of Zoe Girl? It was a little later than that. I was about 25 when uh, Zoe Girl just got started. And, yeah, I was exactly the kid you were describing. I, I have loved Jesus as far back as I can remember been deeply committed to the Word of God. I knew as a kid that the Bible was God's Word. I, I didn't know how to intellectually articulate all of that back then. But yeah, man, as long as I can remember, I've loved Jesus, been really involved in youth group and mission trips and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I ended up having a bit of a crisis of faith as an adult. And and you tell the story in a book that you've written called Another Gospel, which, by the way, I hope our, our listeners will get a hold of and will read, because it is part memoir and part apologetics, and I think it gives us some insight into what's going on with this phenomenon in the culture, and I think it helps us think through what our own engagement needs to look like and and how we process doubt. So what was it that caused your faith to hit a wall as a young adult? Yeah, well, actually, it, I was probably in my mid thirties, early to mid thirties. I call that a young adult. Zoe okay, so all, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a young adult. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Zoe Girl had come to a close, and and we were all married by this point and having kids. So I found myself at home with a new baby, my first, and my husband and I started attending a church just right here in the heart of the Bible Belt in Tennessee, here in the Nashville area. And I really love, we both really loved this church. We loved the sense of community we found there. We loved the pastor's intellectual approach to sermons. And we got really plugged in there. And after about eight months of attending there, the pastor invited me to be a part of a small inner circle type study and discussion group that he compared to seminary. He said, if you go through this class, you'll come out on the other side of it with a seminary level education. And I was so excited. And I showed up to the first class with my Bible and my notebook and my pen. And it was in that first class that the pastor revealed to us that he was actually an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that phenomenon of deconstruction, because I found out later that this pastor had already been through the process of deconstruction and was actually actively seeking to get church members to get into deconstruction so that he could convert them to progressive Christianity. And I can tell you, he was really, really good at it. And so uh, we lasted about four months. I lasted about four months in the class. And when we left the church, I found myself kind of isolated, and all of the doubts that were planted in that class, I mean, I'm talking intellectual doubts, reliability of the Bible, 
did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Did Old Testament characters actually exist, or are there just fairy tales and fables? And all of those doubts began to take root in my own heart, and they grew, and it really propelled me into my own process of deconstruction. Of course, I didn't understand what was happening to me at the time. I didn't know that word yet, but uh, that, that's what I went through. And it was really terrifying. It was dark, and it was scary, and it was heartbreaking because essentially this Christianity, this Jesus that I'd walked with my whole life, I had become intellectually persuaded that it probably wasn't true. Hmm. And so my heart and my head were just at war with each other. It was, it was a really difficult time in my life, a dark night of the soul, if you will. So why did you spin out at four months if you were, if you were, I mean, he was, what was happening was what he was hoping would happen, that you would confront some of this and you would question it. And, and why, what caused you guys to go, we got to get out of here? That's a great question. So there was one class where the pastor invited the spouses to come, because this is a very small, exclusive, kind of private group. And, of course, my husband was used to me coming home every week saying, you won't believe what what they're saying this week and this week. But it was when they invited the spouses. And I remember my husband just kind of sat in the class real quiet, and we got in the car, and he just looked at me, and he said, we're done. You're done. We're not raising our daughter here. And honestly, I was relieved because I think I was hanging on because at the time, like while I was in the class, I was trying to refute him. I would go home and Google things and try to come back and answer the claims that he had made the week before. But when I was sort of isolated away and I didn't have anybody to argue with, and it was just kind of me and my own thoughts, I think I think that was probably the catalyst that made that go into my own heart in that way. And it was a necessary thing. I had to walk through it. But um, essentially, it was that—that that was what propelled that. Did your husband know that you were going through this existential crisis? Yes. Um, although I will say that I didn't talk to a lot of people about it. I did talk to my husband about it. Although honestly, Bob, I don't even think I had the words to describe what was happening to me. I would say a lot of things, kind of by faith, trying to hang on to my faith. I didn't want anyone else to lose their faith. And so it was very lonely. It was a very um, isolating time for me because I didn't really talk to a lot of people about what was going on uh, because it was honestly just really terrifying for me to face and to actually articulate verbally. And and I'm curious about the pastor who was was behind this. As you look back and and think about his own journey and and what had he just read a bunch of Rob Bell books, what or heard from Bart Ehrman, or I mean, what was causing him to become an evangelist for uh, deconstruction and progressive Christianity? Yeah, well, he was definitely reading a lot of those early emergent leaders, people like Brian McLaren, and I assume people like Rob Bell, and the, definitely the scholarship conclusions of people like Bart Ehrman. And I think he was influenced by that and was ultimately, I think, uh, well, I did learn later from a video he made, he really was trying to get people to deconstruct Hmm. because he really believed that progressive Christianity was the right form of Christianity. And so when, when we left the church, I didn't, I had never really heard the phrase progressive Christianity, but years later, this church where this all happened at rebranded itself as a progressive Christian community. And I remember seeing that phrase and thinking, 
I think I know what that is, because it was very much the type of Christianity that was expressed in this church. And sadly, progressive Christians come to a lot of the same conclusions as atheists, which is why I think, as is a particular part of my journey, God really used apologetics to help rebuild my faith, because of people who were doing apologetics were typically answering the claims of atheists. But interestingly and ironically, they're very similar to and very often the same claims that are being made by progressive Christianity. So it was apologetics that really helped rebuild my faith after this this crisis. I want to continue with your story, but let me just pause right here for those who are listening and going, what what are you talking about progressive Christianity and what is that? So how, do you have a definition for that for us? Yes, progressive Christianity is actually really hard to define because it's really not characterized by concrete beliefs or definitions. Progressive Christians are not creedal like Christians has historically been. And so I think that just the most broad uh, definition we could say is that progressive Christianity is a movement of ex-evangelicals. These are people who have grown up and come out of the evangelical church who are essentially reevaluating um, and often redefining and rejecting not just secondary issues of Christianity or methodology, but they're actually rejecting core historic doctrines of the faith, which is why in my book I argue that this isn't, you know, progressive Christians aren't just a group of people who might be changing their minds on some social issues or leaning a different way politically. This is a different gospel. This is an entirely different religion. It's a different God. It defines a different Jesus, and it's not a Jesus who can save you. And and is it different than traditional mainline Christianity, you know, the, the denominations that that have been mainline and, and have drifted over the years? Well, it's very similar, actually, in theology to the mainline Protestant denominations we see that adopted some of those liberal conclusions from the German higher critical scholarship that came out of Germany in the late 1800s, very similar theological conclusions. But the unique aspect of progressive Christianity is that it's it's like if you take those theologically liberal conclusions and you marry them to the postmodern sort of mood that dominates our culture that's marked by that hyper-skepticism, moral relativism, and you put that all together and drop it right into the evangelical church, you have progressive Christianity. And so uh, progressive Christians are largely, I would say, 99% a movement of people coming out of and basically rejecting the evangelical church. So in this way, we could even think of it as, you know, progressive Christianity is very fluid. There's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella. So they're not so much united in the things they affirm, but the things they deny are the things that I have found them to be very consistent in and almost unanimous in. And if we were to trace the arc through the gospel, starting with creation, uh, you know, the idea that Adam and Eve sinned against God and that sin uh, brought death into the world and caused a separation between humans and God right there from the start in progressive Christianity, they deny the idea that your sin would separate you from God, which of course is going to affect their view of the cross. They uh, characterize the classic view of, of the atonement, of the idea that Jesus died on the cross for my sins as a sacrifice. They're going to refer to this as cosmic child abuse. This implicates the moral character 
of God. And, you know, we could continue tracing it through the gospel, but I think as you can see, there's radically different conclusions when it comes to core fundamental descriptors of what the gospel is, who God is, and who Jesus is when it comes to progressive Christianity. And of course, you title your book, Another Gospel, which is a reference to Galatians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, even if an angel comes preaching another gospel, let him be accursed or let him be anathema. So the conclusion is that progressive Christianity, as it's being expressed today, is outside the bounds of uh, biblical Christianity and is should be anathematized? Uh, that's what I argue in the book. I know it sounds like a bold claim, but if you really read the books that are written by the thought leaders of the movement and you really get into uh, where they're getting their information, how they're doing their theology, and the conclusions that they are coming to, yeah, I think it's completely fair to say this is a completely different religion. And we can talk about this if you'd like to, but it, I think it all really starts with the progressive view of the Bible. You know, if you think about Christians historically, sure, we've disagreed on so many things. We've disagreed on interpretations of certain scriptures. But if you go back to the beginning, go to Jesus, the apostles, the early church, and you trace it through, what you're going to find is a view of the Bible that settles our arguments based on scripture, right? Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that it's God's Word, that it's authoritative for our lives. In other words, the Bible is the boss of us. We, we are compelled as Christians to obey the Word of God, but in progressive Christianity, they generally don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and they'll be very explicit about that. In fact, there was a, a church down in Nashville that kind of went viral with a meme where they stated explicitly, the Bible is not the Word of God. And so in progressive Christianity, the Bible is more viewed as a human book that is written about God, and rather than seeing it as a divine book that where God used human elements, of course, in human writers, but the words are the ones that are inspired by God, whereas in progressive Christianity, that word takes on a whole new meaning. They might say, yeah, the Bible's inspired, but they mean it more like the Bible is inspiring. It might inspire you spiritually, or you might have some sort of a an encounter with God when you read it. But uh, if we were to dive deeper into the progressive view of the Bible, we would see that progressives actually believe that the Bible gets God wrong. You know, when we read these Old Testament accounts of God telling Israel, for example, to go in and pronounce his judgment, essentially, on the Canaanites and wipe them out, in the progressive view, well, that wasn't God speaking because God wouldn't do something like that. And so we can look at those types of commands, we can look at those stories in the Old Testament, and we can say, well, that's not who God is, that's not what God would do. So that's just Israel's best attempt to understand God in the time and the place that they lived, but they just had limited knowledge, they had limited resources, but now as we've evolved spiritually, emotionally, and physically, we've come to a better and higher view of God, and we can look back on some of those stories and say, no, that's not how God is, because we know we, we have a better view of God from this side of history. And so, as you can probably imagine, this is going to affect how they do theology when it comes to everything from creation to sin to the atonement to heaven and hell and judgment and all of those types of, of uh, core gospel issues are going to be come at from a completely different angle. Yeah, as soon as the question, as soon as you answer the question, has God really said, with questioning and doubt, we're back to Genesis chapter 2 now, all of a sudden mm. you you have opened a door that leads you 
uh, in the in the wrong direction. We're talking with Alyssa Childers, who has written a book called Another Gospel, hearing about her story that how she began to deconstruct her faith, the dark night of the soul. In fact, I want to I want to get to that before we move on, but I also want to invite our listeners to join us at 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. Or you can email us now if you have questions or want to comment, SoCalLive at KKLA.com. That's SoCalLive at KKLA.com. Uh, Alyssa, what was it that that brought you back around from uh, from questioning to where you said, "No, I really do believe this." Mm. Well, it was many years. I found myself, like I mentioned before, when we left the church, I found myself kind of isolated away again. And I just remember I would sit in the my daughter's room, and she was, I don't know, maybe ten or eleven months at the time. Uh, maybe close to a year old, and I would rock her in the rocking chair there in the little bedroom, and the light was off, but it just felt like physical, like the darkness was so thick, not just physical darkness, but like really spiritually dark. And I had a lot of conversations with God in those evenings when I'd be rocking her, and I remember just crying out to God one night and saying, God, if you exist, if everything that I've believed my whole life is real and true, then I need you to send me a lifeboat because I feel like I'm drowning in doubt. I could feel these waves of doubt just crashing over my head, and I felt like I was just dog paddling, trying to keep my head above water. And it was it was just fascinating because God really answered that prayer um, through a series of events. He led me to the study of apologetics, and it was just so amazing to me because I wasn't really raised with an intellectual side to my faith. I, it, was, it wasn't a shallow faith. I can't say that I had a blind faith. It was an informed faith, and it was a deeply committed faith, but it wasn't intellectually informed at all. And so when I discovered that wide world of scholarship and apologetics and things like systematic theology, in my book I describe it like I felt like a kid in a candy store who mm. just found out candy exists. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was just such an exciting adventure to go on and, and rebuild those things. And so it was, it was many years of studying. It was probably five or six years. Um, I, I, fairly early on in that process, I was settled that God existed and that Christianity was true. And from there, I was really trying to get at some of the claims that the pastor had been making and, and learn for myself what do I answer for these things? What information am I going to give somebody if they come to me and give me a claim like that? And so it was about five or six years later that I started blogging about apologetics, and, and I'm so thrilled, honestly, to just get to be on this side of it, knowing that the Lord is using maybe in some small way the efforts that I'm doing to, to help somebody else through maybe a time of crisis in their own faith walk as well. Well, and that's that's where I'd love if any of our listeners might be in that spot and want to contact us. Eight 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 fifty two talks is the number. Our guest is Alyssa Childers, author of the book Another Gospel. Maybe you've wound up in progressive Christianity, and you would say, "I think this is right," and you just you happen to be tuned in this afternoon. We'd love to engage with you and and hear why you've landed where you've landed, and and why you think the evangelicals have got it wrong 
or or maybe you see yourself as a progressive evangelical. I don't know. It's it's hard to hard to put the labels around all of this. But here's what we're mm. going to do. We're going to take a quick time out, continue our conversation with Alyssa Childers. You feel free to call us at eight 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 fifty two talks or email online at SoCalLive at KKLA dot com. We will be right back. You're listening to Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ, 28 minutes past 3 o'clock. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking about uh, progressive Christianity deconstruction. We're talking with Alyssa Childers, who's written a book called Another Gospel. You're welcome to join us at 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. Alyssa, if somebody is uh, checking out a church online... How can they, what will tip them off that maybe this is a church that has that has wandered toward the progressive side of things? Mm. And this is a great question. And the reason this is such an important question is because progressive Christians don't tend to form their own churches. They tend to sort of take over evangelical churches. So what you'll often see is an evangelical church start to kind of slide into progressive Christianity. And then sometimes they'll rebrand and call themselves progressive Christian. Or you might just have an evangelical church that um, that that says, hey, we're evangelical, non-denominational, but they have progressive theology. So these signs are really important to look for. And so I think that the first sign that you're going to want to look for is a lowered view of the Bible. And the reason I say that is a lot of progressive Christians will say, no, we have a high view of the Bible. We read Scripture as it was meant to be read. But in saying that, what they mean is that the Bible doesn't actually communicate about God correctly, but it was just the perspective of the human authors. And so it's not uncommon to hear a progressive Christian say something like, well, hey, I disagree with the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul had these biases and prejudices that— colored what he wrote about women or what he wrote about sexuality. And so there's this sort of permission to disagree with Scripture. And so a lot of the terms like things like believing that the Bible is inerrant, in other words, without error, that is almost laughable in progressive Christianity. There aren't uh, many progressive Christians who would say, yes, I believe the Bible is without error. In fact, they view the Bible to be something that's filled with contradictions. It's not telling the same story from Genesis to Revelation. There's all sorts of um, coherence issues with Scripture according to progressive Christianity. So you definitely want to look for any kind of a lowered view of the Bible like that. Uh, Another sign to look for in a church would be that if you start to hear uh, things like personal conscience, your moral intuition, your, your thoughts and your feelings, sort of becoming more of an authority than Scripture, that's definitely a red flag to be looking for, because in progressive Christianity, and often even in the belief statements on progressive Christian churches, it will outright say, we believe in the power of personal conscience. If you, you know, if you think this is right or wrong, we're not going to disagree with you. That That's your personal conscience that you need to listen to. Uh, another sign would be, look for the willingness to reinterpret or even reject historic Christian doctrines. Like, I'm talking about core essentials of the gospel. Uh, so you might hear that couched in language that might say something like, hey, 
The resurrection of Jesus is a great story. There's a lot we can learn from it, but it doesn't really matter if it happened historically. What matters is what we can learn from the story. Or um, you might hear doc- doctrines like the doctrine of hell being reinterpreted, like, hey, we, we don't think that hell is a very loving doctrine, so we don't believe in a God who would send people to hell, so therefore we're going to reject the idea that there is a place called hell where people will be punished. And so that would be one thing to look for. Also, look for a redefinition of terms, because this is something, frankly, that we see in things like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, where they'll use a lot of the same words, but they mean very different things when they use them. And so when you hear words like love, God is a God of love, of course, historic Historic Christians, we affirm that statement, but what we have to understand in progressive Christianity is that the word love doesn't mean the biblical definition of love, but it really means something more along the lines of accepting and celebrating whatever anyone else believes or whatever someone else wants to behave like. And then I would say maybe another, maybe the the last red flag to look for would be to the definition of the gospel. You'll hear the word the gospel a lot in progressive churches, but you really have to know what is meant by that phrase. I mentioned earlier that progressive Christians generally don't believe that sin separates you from God. And so there's even a a progressive church that has right on their website in their belief statement that the good news in capitals, meaning the gospel, is that you are inherently united with God. So really, the gospel, according to progressive Christianity, is that you just need to realize how good you are. You need to realize how beloved you are and how uh, worthy you are, and that's really all you have to do. There's there's nothing that you have to do or, or reach for outside of yourself that's not already there. You just have to realize it. And so um, often that's going to leave a bit of a vacuum, right? So uh, progressive Christians obviously have to have some kind of a positive thing that they're advocating for. And so what you'll often find is that the gospel that includes things like sin and redemption and blood atonement is going to be replaced with more social justice type issues. So now it becomes about what systems of injustice you're tearing down, what sort of relief work you're doing, and this becomes the gospel in progressive Christianity. And of course, as Christians, we know that we want to do good things in the world. We we want to do good works, but that's not what saves us. And I think that in progressive Christianity, that gets a little bit confused. Yeah, and some of the things you're talking about here are not going to be obvious on the website, or even if you visit a church, they're not going to stand out front and say, oh, by the way, we don't believe in hell. You're going to have to do a little digging to to find some of these things. But would Mm -hmm. this be accurate that um, pretty much one of the things that will be front and center is uh, how inclusive a church is? And and by that, I mean how, how affirming uh, where where they are on the LGBTQ scale, isn't that kind of a a marker on one side or the other? Whether you've gone progressive, I'm not. I'm, I'm thinking there are not a lot of uh, progressive churches that are still very conservative when it comes to LGBTQ issues, and not a lot of conservative right. churches that are that have gone over to the other side on LGBTQ stuff. Seems like that's kind of a a litmus test for whether you've gone progressive or not. Absolutely. Um, That would be, you know, if there's one cardinal doctrine of progressive Christianity, it would be the redefinition of sexuality. And frankly, not just in the area of same-sex marriage and relationships, 
that would be a core fundamental of, of progressive Christianity, that you would have to be affirming of same-sex marriage and relationships. But honestly, the biblical ethic on sexuality in general in progressive churches is something that has been completely redefined. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago by a progressive Lutheran minister named Nadia Boltz-Weber, and the book's called Shameless. And in the book, she argues that. She says, you know, the historic Christian ethic on sexuality doesn't just need a few tweaks. It actually needs to be burnt down to the ground, and we need to start completely over. In the book, she argues that holiness means unity between two people. And because of her erroneous definition of holiness, she basically says that any sexual encounter that you believe is making you thrive not only can be acceptable in God's eyes, but you can actually call that holy. And she does do that. She calls different sexual encounters between people holy because of her definition of holiness. And she says, you know, this whole idea of telling kids to wait until they get married to have sex, this is repressing their sexual growth. This is causing them to have miserable sex lives when they get older. And so uh, this book was endorsed by major progressive leaders, and this really is the sexual ethic of the progressive church. And so, and they're very much, um, there's an activism for that in the progressive church. You would not be accepted in the progressive Christian paradigm if you were not affirming of not just same-sex marriage and relationships, but pretty much just what anybody would, would feel is, a, is good and makes them thrive sexually, you'd have to affirm that. And, and you made the point earlier, and I, I think this is so helpful, that, that uh, we sometimes use the same vocabulary but not the same dictionary, because, uh, right. for example, a church might say, you know, everyone is welcome here. Well, every church would want to say everyone is welcome here, but but among progressives, that means you're, you're welcome no matter what you believe or what you practice. Or your, your sin is welcome here, and, and um, this we we just there there needs to be some discernment and some careful thinking. We got to take a quick time out. When we come back, though, Alyssa, I want to ask you to speak to why this is happening at the level it's happening today? Why is deconstructing and progressive Christianity, is this just getting blown out on Twitter bigger than it really is? Or is there something really big happening? And if so, why is it happening? Our guest is Alyssa Childers. We're talking about another gospel, which is the title of her book. Uh, your phone calls are welcome at 888-52-TALKS, 888 2557 or email us at SoCalLive at KKLA.com. We'll take a time out and be back. You're listening to SoCal Live on KKLA and KPRZ. Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. It's uh, 16 before 4 o'clock. We're talking with Alyssa Childers, the author of a book, Another Gospel, about progressive Christianity, taking your calls at 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. Before we go to the phone, so Alyssa, why is there such, it, it, does it seem like there's just such a movement here toward churches becoming progressive or Christians deconstructing, or are we just hearing about it because it's being amplified beyond what's really going on? Well, I actually think that there's kind of a big thing happening. I, I, I kind of tend to be in the camp that we do hear about 
a lot of the most kind of sensational cases on social media through highly platformed Christians that are going through deconstruction. But I do think they represent a much broader group of people who are going through this process of deconstruction. Uh, You can search the hashtag deconstruction on Instagram and see just lots of pages dedicated to people actually inviting you into this process. It's very evangelistic in nature, and I think it's happening to a lot of people. And I think the why uh, can vary, but ultimately it comes down to the same fundamental principle, and that is a rejection of the evangelical Christianity that they grew up with. And so in some cases, it might be something like someone has been through a type of spiritual abuse, and it might be a legitimate case of spiritual abuse, and that gets all tangled up with the gospel, and so the whole thing starts deconstructing. Or in other cases, it might be that they grew up in a hyper-legalistic environment, and they're rejecting that. Uh, In other cases, it can be a political thing. You know, they they see um, Christians who have been the mentors in their lives who have maybe slid over to a more political type of gospel, and they're rejecting that. But in in all of these cases, though, the actual gospel gets tangled up with in abuses. And I think that that can be the kind of the key to understanding. There's always a wound. There's always a reason someone is deconstructing, and it's almost never solely intellectual. And I think that's something that's really important for Christians to understand, that this is not largely purely intellectual. It can it can look that way, but if you really look deeper, there are reasons and wounds um, that, that people are sort of using as a springboard to catapult out of the church. Hmm. Alyssa Childers, our guest, number is 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. Vicki is on the line with us from L.A. Vicki, welcome to Southern California Live. Hello, can you hear me? We can. Thanks for calling in. Oh, good. Okay. I just wanted to ask you, what do you think about a church that they think that once you're a believer, you have to somehow work your way to heaven, and that, you know, Jesus' uh, death on the cross isn't enough. You have to somehow earn your way to heaven. Well, I I know what I think. Alyssa, you want to speak to that one first? (laughs) Yeah, well, if you look at every false gospel that has cropped up since uh, the birth of Christianity in the first century, it typically tends to come down to a works-based gospel. And I don't know, I don't know why we resist the concept of grace so much as Christians. Obviously, you know, I, I don't know if it's because we want to earn it or we want to do something to make ourselves worthy before God that He would maybe save us because of some great thing we've done or something like that. But grace is unmerited favor. It's, we don't deserve this grace, but He gives it to us anyway. And so, uh, yeah, I would, I would say that that is going to be a false gospel. Any gospel that tells you that there's something you have to do to earn your salvation, that's a gospel of works. And we do see that reflected in the progressive church. I, I'm not sure they would say it explicitly like that, but in progressive Christianity, to get in, into the good graces, to do the thing, you have to do the work, you have to do all the things, um, advocate for the right causes and things like that. And ultimately, that just bottoms out into a works-based gospel. Well, and I remember hearing somebody years ago who said there are essentially um, two two messages, two religions in the world. One religion is the religion of human effort, and you can lump everything 
on the planet other than Christianity under that religion, because whether it's Judaism mm. or Islam or Buddhism, there, there's human effort involved. Christianity comes along and says the human effort required for you to be reconciled to God has already been paid. Jesus paid mm. it all. And so we we don't now. Now, here's what we need to understand on the other side of that. Those of us who love Jesus are going to be motivated to want to have works that please God, but we're not earning anything with that. We are simply mm-hmm. expressing our love and devotion for Jesus through our our uh, our works. So anybody who's telling you that you get saved and then you got to do works, well, I'll take you back to Galatians chapter 1. That's what was going on in the book of Galatians, that Peter came along and said, yeah, you got to love Jesus, but you got to keep some of the Jewish law. And Paul says, I don't care if it's Peter or not. This is another gospel, and we can't have this. And that's what the whole book is about. Vicki, does that make sense? That Does that answer your question? I think, is Vicki still with us? Sure yeah, Vicki. We were talking about before I got on the radio, and this is a confirmation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is so important and so helpful for for us to keep in mind. The, the gospel of grace is the only gospel there is, and out of that grace, we we express our love for Jesus in our good works, but that's not what gets us to heaven. Vicki, thank you for your call. Mm-hmm. 888-52-TALKS is the number, 888-528-2557. Of course, Alyssa, I'm, if, if we had somebody here who was... Uh, in a progressive church, and they heard you say, you know, the progressives, they've got their own list of things that you got to do to validate that you really love Jesus. They'd they'd say, well, don't evangelicals have the, I mean, you have to have your quiet time, and you have to do this, and you got to, don't we have our own list of of do's and don'ts that, that we have to do? Well, I think you just articulated it so well. There are certainly things that you want to do. In fact, Jesus is very clear. He says, uh, you know, if you love me, obey my commandments. And he talks about proving to be his disciples by bearing the good fruit of obedience. And so we know that our faith works hand in hand with works, that, as James says, faith without works is dead. Um, And so I think that that we can look at those works as an evidence. You know, we, we see that there's conviction in our hearts. There's, there's a conviction over our sin. And, and we want to repent. We want to respond to the light that God gives us. Um, but it's not, it's not doing those good works that saves us. The Bible is so clear on this. Paul was so clear on this, especially with that, the early, uh, council that they had to come together to figure out what are we going to do about what, who they called the Judaizers. These were, um, Christians who believed you had to kind of become Jewish before you could become Christian and go through all these rites. And Paul is saying, no, you don't have to do that. Um, it's, it's the gospel of grace. And so I think this is something we tend to resist in our flesh. I'm not sure why, but it's something that sort of prevails through church history, through all the false gospels and false versions of Christianity that have sprung up over the years. Yeah, I think the reason why is it's called pride, because we want mm. to we want to present our own goodness before God, and that's that's what the enemy appeals to. I'm curious— no doubt you you have uh, come across on Facebook somewhere people who you grew up with, who you were in youth group with, who were fired up just like you were, who have deconstructed, who have now tossed it out and said, I don't believe that anymore. I'm not there. I'm They're either in a progressive church or they're not going to church anymore. Have you tried to reach out to any of these folks? And I'm just wondering, is there a way back? I mean, I know there's a way back, but have you seen people who have gone to the progressive side find their way back to the gospel? 
I have seen some, and this is the encouragement that I find often, I think in the majority of cases, what you'll find is that people, the reason they're deconstructing and going into progressive Christianity in the first place is because there's something about historic Christianity that they have deemed to be immoral or evil. And so it's a, it's a very moral thing for them to go over to progressive Christianity. So it's very difficult when somebody has already made up their mind that basically that the gospel is bad, you know, or not beautiful in some kind of a way. It's very difficult to compel people back. But I have seen it happen in a few cases. One case that comes to my mind, and I, I've interviewed Dave on my podcast, but Dave Stovall from the band Audio Adrenaline, deconstructed into progressive Christianity, was fully into progressive Christianity, and then met a pastor who essentially discipled him back to historic Christianity by really questioning some of his fundamental assumptions about morality and about the Bible and about Christianity and the nature of God. And uh, it's a beautiful story because he talks about how he had essentially just been discipling himself along with some other guys and that he was touring with at the time. They were all kind of discipling each other without a mature Christian leading them toward truth. And so they deconstructed. But this pastor, when he was really asking him some difficult questions about the conclusions he'd come to, it started challenging some of those things. And he ended up repenting of progressive Christianity and coming back to the real gospel. So I do see it happen. It's just, sadly, it's not very, very often. But at the same time, the story is not written, right? We don't know the end game here. God knows the end game. And I think that I'm praying and I'm believing that we're going to see a lot of people who have gone into the progressive Christian church come back to the real gospel when they come to the bottom of progressive Christianity, which essentially gives you nothing to replace what you've just deconstructed. They give you a hundred questions and no answers. And I think there are people who are coming to the bottom of that and realizing, man, I, I may I may go back a little bit and take a look at these things again. Mm. And I'm praying that that's the case. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I've loved this hour. I hope folks will check out your website, alyssachilders.com. Check out your podcast. Thanks for being with us. We're wrapping things up. We'll be back with another hour here in just a minute on Southern California Live. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.